everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of The America We've Been Given. I'm your host, Hunter Fox. Today, we've got a pretty special episode lined up. Uh, it's a different format. This is going to be the usual format of this show. It's not always going to be interviews like it was last week with Dr. Wes Jameson. Um, occasionally, we will have interviews, but for the most part, it's just going to be me explaining some you know, political and governmental topics that are important for... Uh, an informed electorate to understand and things that they might not make a lot of sense to the average person but they need to things that affect us in our daily lives today we're going to be talking about conflict between state and federal law and then executive orders and then we'll finish up by talking a little bit about vaccine passports just to kick off with conflict between state and federal law basically the constitution um, in the 10th amendment it says Anything that's not explicitly stated in the Constitution, any powers not granted to the federal government, are going to be the responsibility of the state. And so in the last, what, 250 years since the Constitution was ratified, the government has grown significantly. Uh, The federal and, and state governments have grown significantly. And so what we start to see over time is these laws that are being produced at the state and federal level, they start to um, they start to conflict with each other. And so the most obvious example, the go-to example right now, is marijuana. So federally, marijuana is a Schedule I controlled substance. Basically means it's the most serious level of drugs. So it's right up there with cocaine, with heroin, methamphetamine, all those hard, heavy drugs, marijuana is classified the same way federally. Now, in the last decade or so, we've started to see states legalize marijuana. Um, In 33 states, medical marijuana is legal, and in 15 states, recreational marijuana is legal. So you can just buy it the same way you can go get alcohol at a liquor store. You can get marijuana at a dispensary. And so, how does this happen? How is it that if you want to do so, you can go to California or Nevada, New York, Oregon, do these places, Colorado. How is it that you can go there and then just pick up some marijuana, even though it's federally illegal? So, basically, the federal government back in the Obama administration decided that marijuana was going to be the lowest priority. So that it's still illegal, but they're not going to prosecute possession charges Um, under normal circumstances. They're focused mainly on organized crime, uh, gang-related activity, anything that supports violence, wherein medical and recreational marijuana is is pretty low on their uh, radar. So another thing that we saw a few years back also during the Obama administration was gay marriage. This was something that was not federally legal, but we started seeing it go state by state. It was legalized. It started out in Massachusetts and then moved, um, basically moved westward from there. But what happened over time was as states started to legalize this, we saw change in the federal government. It became federally legal. And so that's kind of how things go today, is the federal government is a little bit too um, overarching in this kind of thing, where they're a little bit behind when it comes to change. And so 
as states start to legalize things, as states start to adopt them, the federal government gets lax with their prosecution of these things. And then eventually, like with uh, gay marriage, it becomes federally legal. And so I think we're, we're right around the corner from um, marijuana being legalized federally. It's just a matter of time, especially with 33 states, you know, having medical marijuana and 15 states having recreational. Um, it's just a matter of time before that becomes federally legal. Now, a different issue that in regards to the conflict between state and federal governments is gun control, something that is starting to heat up right now with all the mass shootings that we're seeing. So Arkansas in the last week passed a law basically saying that they weren't going to support or help the government enforce any federal gun control legislation. And so, oh, this is a a little bit heftier of a subject than marijuana. Um, What this means is that the federal government is going to be in charge of the enforcement of any laws in these states. So Arkansas has legislation like this. I know Kentucky, um, Utah has something similar. Basically, there's, there's quite a few states that have said they aren't going to help the federal government enforce these laws. And so that means it's going to be on the federal government. So Article 6, Section 2 of the Constitution is what we call the Supremacy Clause, which basically boils down to Anytime there's a conflict between federal and state law, the federal law is the supreme law of the land, and the federal law is what's going to supersede state law. And so, even in places where they say they're not going to enforce federal gun control, it's going to be the responsibility of the federal government to go in and use their federal agencies, be it the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, or the FBI, or any real other federal law enforcement agency will be charged to go in and to enforce these new regulations. And so what we see is it's there's kind of a difference. Basically, the, the federal government doesn't really care about marijuana that much. They don't like it enough to legalize it, but they don't care enough to prosecute anybody for just possession or, or low... Uh, nonviolent crimes like that. So that's why we're seeing medical marijuana get legalized across the country. Now with firearms, that's a completely different story. We are seeing a lot of mass panic. We're seeing a a more um, focused charge on gun control related legislation. And so it's going to be a lot more difficult for states to, I guess, defend their residents against against prosecution for for issues regarding firearms which today's episode isn't about isn't about firearms it's not about the second amendment i don't want to get too deep into this but it's kind of an issue that that relates pretty heavily to the two topics that we're talking about today and so i'll just go into it a little bit we have an issue in this country with mass shootings too many mass shootings happen and you can say oh well the numbers don't the numbers don't show that it's only seven or eight a year that's ridiculous seven or eight mass shootings a year is still is still a significant problem that's seven or eight events where families are losing somebody you know that's gun crime is an issue but the easy answer is to pull guns the easy answer is to issue an executive order that's going to ban assault weapons or that's going to require red flag laws, things like that that we'll get into in a second. 
But the real issue that we're facing in this country is not a firearms issue. It's a mental illness issue. There is not a single mass shooting that doesn't boil down to mental illness. Hate is a mental illness. You know, white nationalism is a mental illness. Anti-Semitism is a mental illness. Things like that have no place in this country, but they exist. And getting rid of guns doesn't solve that problem. This is a problem that's way more complicated than that. The government is really a simple, simple organization. And just like any organization, they're going to look for the easiest possible solution to a problem that they're facing. Now, they have a huge problem here with, with mass shootings. They have a huge problem with gun deaths. And so the easy answer is to get rid of guns. But I imagine they'll find out soon that criminals don't follow the law. That's kind of what makes them a criminal. And that if bad people have guns and good people don't, crime isn't going to go down. It's going to go up. This kind of leads into the next topic, which would be executive orders. So the easiest way to explain executive orders is think of the executive branch as a corporation. Let's say the president is the CEO of the company. For example, let's say it's Apple. If the CEO of Apple wants to increase the production of iPads, wants to increase development of iPads over iPhones, then they tell the company, we're going to start focusing more on iPads we're going to take a little bit of the resources from iPhone production and development, and we're going to bring it to iPads. They could do that. That's completely within their authority as the chief executive of the company. You know, that's, that's basically their job. And so that's how the executive branch works. So let's say the president decides he, using the marijuana example from earlier, the president wants to shift focus from, you know, focusing on low-level marijuana possession, they're going to shift focus to gang-related activity, you know, cartel stuff, drug trafficking, more violent crimes like that. All they would do is basically direct the the DEA or the ATF or whatever it be to shift focus from marijuana possession to drug trafficking. And so an executive order would be used without the need for going through the legislative process because it's all contained within the executive branch. What we're starting to see is issues where the executive order is used in lieu of legislation. An executive order is not a law. It's a little bit different. It's still subject to review by the judicial branch, which means it still needs to be in line with the Constitution. But basically, the executive branch, in times of crisis or um, emergencies, the president can make quick decisions and shift the focus of the executive branch. Now, most of the time, these executive orders are not used in times of crisis, though we do see presidents like FDR. He had something like over 2,000 executive orders, like by far the most out of any president, which makes sense since he was president during the Great Depression. But most of the time, these executive orders are for small things, just directives from the executive branch. The first executive order was back in 1789. It was by George Washington, and he was directing the heads of each department in the executive branch, basically his cabinet members, to give a report on the status of the country. And so this, completely fine, it's within the power of the executive to request this kind of information from the people in his branch. And so that's, that's the, the constitutional function of the executive order. Now, over time, these executive orders have grown. 
they've sort of stretched and they kind of pushed the envelope in terms of what an executive order can be. In the next few days, we're expecting a series of executive orders. Politico broke that we're expecting six executive orders from President Biden. And these executive orders target gun control. Basically, the president can justify this type of thing as a crisis in America. As we were talking about earlier, we see the the pandemic of gun violence. And so the simple solution would be to issue an executive order that limits or bans different weapons. And he doesn't have to go through Congress to make that happen. So does that mean that the president is basically the king? With just a snap of his fingers, he can create any laws that he wants? Not exactly. So even under the current understanding of executive orders, the president is still checked by the judicial branch. So any executive order that he issues is still able to be ruled unconstitutional by the judicial branch. So that means no matter what the president comes out with, there will be opposition to it and it will be brought up in the courts. And eventually, depending on the size of it, it could be brought in front of the Supreme Court. So that does mean that we do have some protection against tyranny, even with the expanding definition of an executive order. So for the last topic today, we're going to be talking about vaccine passports. For those of you that haven't heard about vaccine passports, don't really know what that is. Basically, it's an idea that people who are vaccinated could carry around basically their proof of vaccination. And the the whole idea is that it would kickstart the economy and that people who have been vaccinated could go about freely doing their daily day-to-day activities You know, if you wanted to go to the club, then you could show your vaccination papers, go and and hang out with a bunch of people, or you want to go to restaurants or movie theaters and things like that. The idea is that this vaccination passport would allow people who are immune to COVID to go in and basically restart day-to-day lives. Now, it doesn't stop at just social life. It also goes into, there's people saying that it could help people get back to work, that if they've been vaccinated, that they could go back in and then they could live their day-to-day lives just as they normally would. And look, I'm all for a return to normalcy. I would love to get back to -to day-to-day life. You know, if I didn't have to wear a mask everywhere, you know, if I could go hang out with friends, I'm, I'm all for that. I mean, I live in Utah. I've been doing it for a little while now. We haven't really had any spikes lately, but it's still... It's a tricky subject when you start separating people into groups like this. And especially, I mean, the World Health Organization just put out a statement saying, <laughs> warning against vaccine passports. And if the World Health Organization is warning against an idea that's that's pushed so hard by the left like this, then you can start to kind of tell that maybe it's not a great idea. The World Health Organization doesn't have a lot of good ideas, but when they disagree with the left, that's when you know for certain that it's not good news. So why is it such a bad idea? Well, basically right now, there's not enough vaccines. I mean, the the rates that people are getting vaccinated, it's just not high enough for this to really have any effect on anything. You know, if you're vaccinated, go do your thing. If you're not vaccinated, then, I mean, social distance, stay safe. But really at this point, and by the time that we do get to the point where vaccines have been administered enough and enough people are immune to COVID, we're going to get to the point where we reach herd immunity and it's not going to be an issue anymore anyway. And so basically, this would just be a huge money pit that the government would spend money figuring out these vaccine passports. And by the time they're actually effective, then it would be a waste. Enough people would be vaccinated that we could be able to return to normalcy anyway. And so generally, 
as you'll you'll learn by listening to this podcast in the future, I'm against any unnecessary action by the government. And not only is this unnecessary, it's a pretty serious violation of a person's rights to do what they want with their body. If you're basically telling them that unless they get this vaccination that hasn't been around for very long, we don't absolutely know the 100% of the effects. It was pushed through the CDC trials really quickly. You can't blame a person for not wanting to get that vaccine. But then you're going to go ahead and say that they can't get back to normal life unless they have the vaccine. A push like this is not exactly reassuring for people that were already skeptical, already on the edge. Maybe they'll get it, maybe they won't. But with a push like this saying you can't go back to normal unless you get it, it's just going to bring people that are on the edge kind of away from the edge of getting the vaccine. I'm all for getting the vaccine. Go for it. Do what you want. Um, It did pass the CDC trials, even though it was pretty hastily. I think there's no issues with getting the vaccine. But from a personal standpoint, if you feel like you don't want to get the vaccine, if you're uncomfortable with getting the vaccine, vaccines, you know, if you're unable to get the vaccine, you shouldn't be restricted from returning to normal life just on that basis. And then it's not a effective way to reopen the economy. All the data shows right now, you know, with Florida and Texas, with getting rid of all COVID mandates, then their numbers are still dropping. I'm not one of those crazy tinfoil hat guys. I'm not worried about, you know, the vaccination passports being used to control you by the government in any way. I don't think it's that deep. I just think it's an inefficient, ineffective system that doesn't need to be implemented. We don't need to have this to reopen. And I think the further along we get, you know, with COVID numbers consistently dropping, it's not going to be an issue that takes serious root, but it is something that we should be wary of. Well, that's about all we've had to discuss today. It's a little bit shorter of a show than it usually will be. I'm going to try and keep them to about 30 minutes. But we've had some good discussion, and we got through what we needed to talk about. So thank you for listening, guys. Please go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. It's real underscore T-A-W-B-G, real, the America we've been given. It's on Instagram and on Twitter. And guys, the topics for these shows are going to be from listener suggestions. So follow, hit me up either on Instagram or Twitter. Just let me know what you want to hear, what you want to talk about. Let me know anything that confuses you, anything that we can try and break down a little bit, and we'll make it happen. I'm here for you guys, so just let me know, and we'll put it in the show. Thank you guys for listening.